to that point, development of Hong Kong's democracy up to the point. I think we need uh, more action in order to strive for democracy in Hong Kong. So I suggest uh, 10,000 people applying the uh, civil disobedience um, um, action plan to uh, put pressure on Beijing. Hello and welcome to Jumping Off the Ivory Tower with Prof. Julie Mack. My name is Dana Cornwall and I'm the Project Coordinator at the National Self-Represented Litigants Project at Windsor Law. And I'm Julie McFarlane, the Director of the National Self-Represented Litigants Project at Windsor Law. And I'm back! And you're back! Julie's been globetrotting well, all winter. I've been in, uh, in Hong Kong and in Australia, yeah. which I have to say were much better places to be for the weather. Uh, <laughs> but I was working hard. And on that topic, uh, yes. our episode today uh, was recorded in Hong Kong, and it was it's a really good one. We're both really excited about it. It's a great conversation that Julie had with Professor Benny Tai and two of his students. That's right. This was something that was really a highlight of my time in Hong Kong. I got to sit down with Professor Benny Tai at uh, Hong Kong U, where he's a professor of constitutional law, uh, and to talk to him about his role as one of the founders of the Occupy Central movement, which is essentially the movement movement protesting for universal suffrage in Hong Kong. Uh, And Benny, you know, is interesting because in some ways he's such an establishment figure. He is, as I've said, a constitutional law professor. He's a former president of the Law Society of Hong Kong. He was the associate dean in the law faculty for a while. And then in January 2013, he published this article, which he refers to in our conversation as that little piece. Um, And uh, it was published in a Chinese language um, journal, the Hong Kong Economic Journal. So we can't provide a, a piece in English. But it was what lit the spark for this movement. And basically, in that article, he used Uh, the philosophies of Gandhi and uh, Martin Luther King to argue for a peaceful, nonviolent protest to pressure the Chinese government to allow Hong Kong to have universal suffrage for everyone to be able to participate in elections. And so that little piece created the spark for the movement that became Occupy Central. And there are some important consequences of that that we also talk about here that I'm just going to give people a little background with. One is that Professor Tai was charged with three counts of public nuisance, and he has been tried, found guilty, and he is awaiting sentencing at the moment. And three of the student leaders in the Occupy Central movement were also charged and convicted, and they were jailed last year for their part in the nonviolent protest. They have just been released. They served uh, on appeal. They served six months. And in the conversation that you're about to hear, Benny Tai is joined by two law students who share their own thoughts about the democracy movement, Denise and Davin. So 
I'm here at Hong Kong University in Hong Kong with Professor Benny Tai, who uh, has been the center, really, of the Occupy movement here in Hong Kong and has graciously agreed, thank you, Benny, yes, thank you. To, uh, to answer some of my questions. And we also have a law student with us, David, who will talk a little bit about nice his experience. You. Thank you, David. So, Benny, mm. you are known around the world now as mm. the initiator of a campaign for universal suffrage in Hong Kong, which is yeah. Hong Kong's own version mm-hmm. of the Occupy movements that we saw across the world in mm-hmm. 2013. Uh, your, your campaign was called Occupy Central with Peace and Love, mm. which is not the same title that was used elsewhere. It's a great title. <laughs> yeah. And of course, just to let people know, Central refers to the Central Business Area, yes, right, the, the right, District right. of Hong Kong. And Benny, you published an article in 2013 calling mm. for an Occupy movement in Hong Kong and things sort of snowballed yes, from right, there. So right. tell me, why did you decide to step into the political fray and what did you hope that the Occupy movement would achieve? Well, actually, it's a long story. Actually, starting from the time that I was a law student at the District University, University of Hong Kong, I participate in the democratic movement at the time. That's right. the beginning of the Hong beginning. Kong's uh, democratic movement as a student leader at that time. Then I uh, started my research and teaching career at the University of Hong Kong, the Faculty of Law. So I major in constitutional law, so we can see the connection. I can see the connection, uh, Between yes. <laughs> my research, my study, and about the uh, political development in Hong Kong, because that's actually part of things we need to teach about every year. Exactly. Now, but for some time that, yes, I was very active at a time when I was a student, but then I played the more, I would say, the... Uh, uh, outline role as researcher, commentator. And actually, I could not foresee that little piece that I have written could have caused that kind yes. of uh, yes. uh, it lit effect. The yes, right. Yes. It, it, it's, I just suggest an idea that uh, up to that point, development of Hong Kong's democracy up to the point, uh, I think we need... Uh, more action in order to strive for democracy in Hong Kong. So I suggest uh, 10,000 people applying the uh, civil disobedience um, um, action plan to uh, put pressure on Beijing. Now, you may say that at that time we have two kinds of goals to achieve. One is that to generate the political pressure on Beijing to honor the promise in our constitution, that's recorded the basic law, that we'll have universal suffrage yeah. uh, to elect our chief executive. That is like the president of Hong Kong. But at the same time, we know that uh, it's not easy to achieve the goal uh, by just one action. So actually, my the, the, the movement was started by, we call it the Occupy Trio, the three of us, including yes. Reverend Zhu Yuming yes. and also uh, Professor Chen Kin Man, yes. a sociology professor. And, and especially uh, to Reverend Chu, he mentioned very clearly at the very beginning that the movement was also a, a, uh, a movement of raising the awareness of Hong mm-hmm. Kong people mm-hmm. that the importance of democracy uh, to Hong Kong's uh, long-term future. So this was the two, two goals. Two yeah. goals. One of that we failed to achieve. That means the changing the system. We are still fighting very hard for the change. And up to this point, still no change. 
Um, but the second goal of raising the awareness of Hong Kong people about the importance of democracy, I would say that we have achieved much more than mm-hmm. we uh, expected. And I think they even can, can give some evidence about that, the, yeah. the impact of the Occupy movement to the Hong Kong society. David, do you want to comment on that? Yeah, sure. Um, When the Occupy movement started, I was a secondary five student in Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. Especially not only my school, like my other friends in other schools also discussed with me how the Occupy movement develops and like about the social issues in Hong Kong, especially about democracy and our democratic development in the society. And I think at that time, it's the most heated time that um, Hong Kong students start thinking about the future of Hong Kong. I think that's the like start of my generation of thinking about the um, future of Hong Kong, especially yes. when we are talking about the 50-year limit, uh, the end of basic law, like how should we move on? Yeah, and just, just to explain to people, when the handover took place in 1997, it was under an agreement that Hong Kong would con- continue to have its own political and legal system for 50 years. So this, we're now talking with David, who might be around when that 50 years <laughs> yeah. is up, which yes. might not be the might case for be, Benny I, and I. I <laughs> yeah. So obviously this is something that his generation has to be very aware of. Yes, and I think um, the effect and influence of Occupy Movement is still here today, that my generation are still thinking about the future of Hong Kong, especially after the Occupy Movement ended, but the thinking and the debate and the discussion continue. Right. Yes, right. So, Benny, to, to ask you, I suppose as a constitutional law professor, mm. um, you know, the more technical question mm-hmm. here, one of the issues, um, or maybe the central issue, in fact, is that the chief of executive mm. of Hong Kong, who, as you described earlier, is like the president or a, the prime minister of Hong Kong, yeah, right. is presently um, elected only by a very small number of people. Mm. And there is a great deal of pressure on the those individuals to find someone who is acceptable to Beijing. Um, And inevitably, it is important to the Chinese government that they should be able to have influence over Mm. the chief executive of Hong Kong. So how do you think that the chief executive should be elected? And how much influence do you think China should have over Hong Kong's politics? Now, if you read our constitution, the basic law, the relevant article of the basic law that the chief executive... Uh, will be elected through universal suffrage. You can interpret it narrowly, or you can interpret it widely, to allow uh, allowing different degree of uh, participation of uh, the general public in Hong Kong. I think there's no question about the person will be elected by one person, one vote. Everyone will have one vote in electing. But I think the key uh, issue in Hong Kong is about the nominating process. Mm-hmm. Now, Beijing make a decision uh, and interpret the relevant provisions, uh, giving a very narrow interpretation that um, basically will allow Beijing to have a very tight control over who can be the candidate. Right. Um, and they will only allow two to three persons. And they're not expressly mentioned, but they must be uh, patriots. That's people that could, uh, Beijing could accept. When we organize uh, the movement, we have also, uh, the University of Hong Kong, the Faculty of Law, has also organized an international roundtable. We have invited international 
uh, experts on election law, human rights law, political scientists, uh, constitutional law, comparative law, all these areas of uh, experts to come together just to find out what might be some kind of international standard mm. on the nominating process of uh, universal suffrage. And I think the most important thing is that uh, we get from that roundtable discussion, uh, voters should have a free choice of uh, candidates so that they can have a free exercise right. of their will on in electing the person. Now, the exact systems, I think we can surely have a lot of discussion different and different ways of yeah. doing it, but the spirit of it, surely the existing proposal and the existing interpretation, understanding by the Chinese government is not acceptable to us because that will exclude many possible candidates, candidates right. from the, the, the voting by the Hong Kong people. Yes, they may have a one person, one vote, but just that you can only have all the people there will be of the same background or, 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 right. or views. Now, that will not be truly democratic. Right. But clearly, it's important to China that they are able to be influential with whoever mm. is appointed mm. chief executive of Hong Kong. They mm, don't mm. want someone who is really mm, independent. Mm, mm, mm. Um, now, actually, under the uh, basic law of the Constitution, um, anyone elected by Hong Kong people must be appointed by uh, the central government in, in, in Beijing. Beijing. So Beijing actually still have the final say but surely that will require, uh, or that may, may cause some kind of so uh, legitimacy crisis right. if someone elected that Beijing yeah. would not want to appoint. And so that, but that's something we can further discuss on how we can design the nominating process to ensure, on the one hand, we have the uh, sufficient public participation, allowing genuine choices, but also we need to address the concern of Beijing. But in, in, in 2014, when we were kind of uh, working on a movement, we did provide a proposal to mm-hmm. Beijing, suggesting that that may be the starting point for our discussion. But at that point, just the door They were closed. not interested. They right. were not interested. And, and actually, we, 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 we prepared to, to discuss to and may negotiate. Yeah. And, th- and also, we can work out a timetable that maybe in 2017, at that time we're working for the 2017 election, maybe we cannot reach the so-called ideal by one step. Right, but there could be partial. Yes, we can have step by step, but we need to have a a roadmap, a plan. But in fact, that isn't what's happened. And the 2017 election of Carrie Lam as the chief executive took place in just exactly the same way as before. I'm curious about this. I want to to ask another question, Mm. which is my sense when I lived here 25 years ago was that it was difficult to raise the awareness of Hong Kong people, as Davin has talked about already, um, around democracy because of many years of colonization and many years of accepting colonization that mm. didn't include a, a universal suffrage process. So I wonder what you think about just what the barriers are to raising awareness, which, as you said, Benny, has mm. been one of your goals. And, in fact, you said you felt you had begun to achieve that mm. goal, but but there are still barriers, there are still yeah, difficulties. Right, right. Do you think that they hearken back to that era? Yeah, I think... Uh, now, 
Occupy movement uh, is a kind of civil disobedience movement. Also, like many other civil disobedience movement, it's a kind of it it it, it forced the whole community to encounter something that they may not want to face directly in the past. And now, some of the people, surely they're very supportive, and they are also being inspired by the movement. But also, we have some part of the community, they find that they, have, they themselves have to, they're forced to face this kind of uh, uh, conflict. And they will see the Occupy movement or the civil disobedience movement as generating conflicts in the community. So I have And they all, don't want that. Yeah, I have this experience that uh, when I walk in the street, I have people coming to me and say and, 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 and greet me and say, Oh well, thank you you for, for, for doing all these things. But I also have a lot of people coming to me and saying that <laughs> Oh, you have caused so much trouble. Right. Don't call people. right. You're a troublemaker. <laughs> yes, right. Right. So um one of the challenges is getting Hong Kong people to get over perhaps their natural reticence about facing the conflict. Mm, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Right. Um, I want to introduce Denise Law, who another law student who's just joined us. Hello, Denise. Hello. Um, what is your view about what Benny has said that there is a there is maybe a natural reluctance in Hong Kong to face some of the conflicts that are generated? by the Occupy movement? So that I think somehow the Occupy movement being a civil disobedience actually disrupts the social order to some extent. So they will be reluctant to that because they are satisfied with their life. It's the reluctance in the society, but I also find this kind of reluctance in the university, mm. especially on the students' level. Mm. University students or youngsters like us, my generation, are feeling tired probably or maybe they couldn't find anticipation and hope in social mm. movement especially um, when our generation also put a lot of effort in Occupy movement we couldn't really get what we want or we didn't make much progress and I think the lack of hope and lack of anticipation is the greatest barrier that we're facing mm. right now yeah. let's talk a bit more about the university mm. because Benny as a university professor <laughs> Uh, you, of course, have been um, the subject of many, many calls for your dismissal. In fact, um, I read that there was a petition with 80,000 signatures calling yep. for your dismissal, which is quite impressive. Uh, that's, a lot <laughs> Achievement. Of, that's a lot of shit disturbing, I have to say. Um, and among other things, you have been accused of corrupting the morals of young people, such as Denise and Davin. Um, and of course, you have always argued that this is part of your role mm. as a scholar and that, of course, civil disobedience is mm. in itself not a breach of the law. Um, but, you know, what you've done is to mm. combine the roles of scholar and activist yeah, right. in a very powerful way. Yeah, can, right. can you speak a bit more about that and why you think it's appropriate for you to be this kind of leader now, as an academic? The role of an academic or a scholar uh, especially if you are studying things that I'm working on, constitutional law, linking law with the society, you cannot be just a scholar at the ivory tower. And you have to link with the community. And, and so I'm proud to say that I have these uh, roles as 
uh, a scholar or a researcher. I'm an educator. I'm a teacher here. I, I teach uh, law subjects. And also, it's not just in the in the university context mm-hmm. that we actually conduct teaching in the high schools also. Uh, the, the students join with me. We go to the high schools to conduct uh, rule of law workshops for the, for the high school students. And also this role as an activist. I see all the three roles, they are interconnected. Mm-hmm. And, and each role actually brings some uh, insights and, and inspiration mm-hmm. to the other role. So mm-hmm. as a researcher, surely inform how to teach and why we have to uh, be actively involved in the community. But at the same time, as an activist, it brings a lot of understanding about the reality that I can take it back to my study and my research. It it will not be just something about writing a journal article that only five people in the whole world (laughs) can read. So I think that's the the understanding I gain. And surely the way, uh, I would say that all the things are interconnected even in in my teaching. In some way, I, I don't know whether students feel that I'm speaking almost like an activist. <laughs> well, that's awesome. How do you feel about being taught by someone who 80,000 people think should be dismissed? I don't find really a clear distinction between scholar and activist. I think yeah. scholar is a kind of activist. Like, they change yeah, people's mind. Very good. Yeah, and what we already or traditionally think activists is who initiate people to take action, but you cannot go for an action without a clear mind. And without knowledge. Yeah, and without knowledge. So I think um, it is not entirely correct to draw mm. such a clear line between scholars and activists. Oh, thank you. I, I like your way of describing things. And I should ask you to defend me before all these accusations. <laughs> <laughs> Denise, would you like to add something? Learning law is not only about learning the present, but also to learn what the law ought to be and also what improvements can be made to the current legal system. Professors can actually be both activists and also the scholars. I find that being an educator um, gives me a lot of inspiration for activism. Yes, true. And I can feed that back into the classroom. I'm not sure if you know this, Benny, but this this podcast is called Mm. Jumping Off Live Retail. I know, I know, I know. (laughs) So let me let me ask you finally, um, Mm. because I have to ask you this a little bit. Mm. It's a little bit more of a personal question. You know, you have been very steadfast Mm. in the face of um, all this opposition, um, Mm -hmm. this petition to remove you, uh, Mm. the people who come up to you in the street and are not very happy with you, and you're still in the process Mm. um, of a criminal trial. Um, You've had a pre-hearing already. Um, uh, There have been uh, imprisonments as a result of um, charges that arose from the Occupy movement. There are Mm. three students currently um, Mm. who've been serving time. So, you know, you could face possible imprisonment. Yeah. Uh, you yeah. could be made an example of. So, how you know, how do you feel about this? What are you thinking comes next here? And how do you think it's going to play out for you and for Hong Kong? I mean, you can say, say something about both of those. Yeah, actually, I've uh, prepared myself for the uh, possible imprisonment uh, coming out from my trial. And... Uh, Actually, at this point, I still cannot be sure how long would that be, mm. but just have to make preparation for that. And after the Occupy movement, after the Umbrella movement, we are now at a different stage. 
And always say that the struggle for democracy in Hong Kong will be a very long uh, battle. And uh, in this process, um, we may have to, individuals may have to uh, pay some personal costs yeah. for that. And I, uh, the, the uh, student leaders, they're now, some of them are now in prison. And my, the three of us, Steiner movement, surely we will have to prepare for that. But uh, I still believe the Hong Kong system uh, that we are now having could still provide sufficient protection for us to continue the struggle. Not to say that we'll be able to achieve our goal in, in the coming five years or even ten years, but we still have the room to continue our struggle and to raise further the awareness of Hong Kong people, um, practice the uh, principles we advocate, the democratic principles we advocate in the civil society, not to wait until we have democracy or democratic elections in our government system. Actually, in the civil society, in organizing our own campaign, you we can, can practice actually practice democracy. that. And so even though I know there might be chance that I will not be able to teach in the university, and actually every year, every semester, I take this kind of, I made this might be my last semester hmm. at university. But I believe I still have a lot of chance to uh, continue to do my legal education, civil education outside of the universe context. I must say that I enjoy the process very much. If you are doing something that you do not enjoy, you will not be able to continue to do it in this way. And I enjoy the uh, um, sharing my yes. understanding or my uh, knowledge about rule of law to a wider community, go to schools, and actually we are planning to go to the streets to talk about rule of law to uh, the people uh, in the street about why the, the meaning of the rule of law. Maybe uh, I will not be able to stay in university, but... But I, the world is your yes, classroom. Yes, right. Yeah, the world is my classroom. I think that's that may give me even um, uh, more opportunities yeah. than before. And, yeah. Um, yeah. And more excitement and inspiration. <laughs> thank sure, you very sure. much indeed. Thank you. And thank you, Davin. And you. thank you, Denise. So I really, really really loved that interview. It started out so great and then it just got better and better and there's so many wonderful points that they all make and I always make copious notes but I have... I can see your notes go on for pages. Yes, they really are copious (laughs) this time and I had a hard time kind of picking my favorite things out of all of the things that I really liked about this conversation. But the first one happened pretty early on when Dr. Tai talked about the two goals of the Mm. Occupy Central movement, which I think are, are, you know, kind of the regular two goals of any movement. The first being changing the system and the second being raising public awareness. Right. And it really... Kind of the the long term and the shorter term. Yeah, exactly. And he talked about how in terms of the first goal, nothing yet. But uh, in terms of raising awareness, they have achieved much more than they expected. And it really got me thinking about kind of as as context for any other social movement like this. And I think about Me Too and I think about the high school students in the States right now uh, who are planning the march for, um, for March 24th around gun control. 
And the NSRLP. And the NSRLP, of course. And, of course, the NSRLP, any social movement. It can be really demoralizing when you're not seeing that kind of actually changing the system results that you are trying so hard to do. Uh, and it can be frustrating and disappointing. But uh, what he talked about really reminded me that the second is almost, in the long term, more important. And that's really how change gets made, that 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 increasing public awareness and that wave, that kind of slow wave that builds and builds and builds, builds is what is ultimately needed to force the system to change. Yeah, that's right. And I think that, you know, we heard those interesting little reflections in, in both Benny's remarks and also Denise and Davin that mm -hmm. this was also sometimes something that created conflict. And in Hong Kong, there is sometimes a reluctance to push back and to question authority. And so there is some controversy. When I told other people that I had interviewed Benny Tai, you know, some of the people I told muttered darkly and shook their heads. <laughs> so it's not a straightforward slam dunk mm -hmm. to raise public awareness around democracy, which we might in the West imagine that it is. <laughs> it's not at all. Mm -hmm. uh, but they are making gradual progress, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's that grassroots constant pushing, it takes years, and eventually, yeah. eventually. And that kind of leads into one of the other major themes of your conversation, of course, was Benny's and, of course, yours and many other academics' multiple roles as, as scholars and researchers, as mm. teachers, and as activists. And, and I think we both really liked Benny's line about not just sitting in the ivory tower. And of course, that <laughs> harkens to our own uh, I title. I think that Professor Tai is taking our title. <laughs> <laughs> Which is totally fine. <laughs> and then I liked that uh, Davin went on to say he doesn't see a clear distinction at all between the roles of scholar and activist and that he sees scholarship as actually a kind of activism. Mm. And I know that's how you feel. Mm. Mm. I mean, I, I just thought this was such an incredibly rich conversation. We've talked with, with other people on the podcast about this issue. Um, Professor Annika Smith talked mm -hmm. about it extensively, for example. Uh, and we have an upcoming podcast with another scholar activist from my time in Australia who works on LGBTI issues, Paula Gerber, who says exactly the same thing. It's difficult to imagine law not being presented in a way that is about not just the present, but the future. And mm -hmm. I think that there's a lot of law professors who recognize that. And, yeah. I, and I hope that this will be inspiring to them. Absolutely. And just kind of on that theme, because she had such a great line, I have to uh, quote Denise, mm. when she said that uh, learning law isn't just about learning precedent, it's about learning what the law ought to be. Yeah, isn't that a great one? Mm -hmm. We should have that over the every lecture theater in the law school as students go in. To be honest with you, I was almost choking up by the end of this conversation, uh, listening to it, because in the face of all of this opposition and this very real personal danger yeah. that both Benny and his students are facing in terms of, I mean, he could lose his job at any moment. As he says, any semester he expects could possibly be his last. Right. And But even more so, he is, he is facing very real prison time. Yes. And it just, it amazed me because in the face of all that, his cheerfulness <laughs> is palpable. And yeah. he actually he's says... He's a very cheerful, optimistic guy. <laughs> and he actually said how much he's enjoying this work, yeah. which is so amazing. Yeah. It, it's so it, inspiring. It, it, it feeds his, you know, his, his desire for change. And I mean, when I asked him, I felt I had to ask him 
you know, how do you prepare yourself for the possibility of going to prison? And, and just to be clear, I mean, this is a real possibility. Although the student leaders, as I mentioned in the in- intro, have now been released, they were originally um, convicted and sentenced to community service, and the Chinese government appealed that. <sighs> And it was substituted with prison sentences. It's now been subsequently appealed and they've been released. But I think there's a very real possibility that the Chinese government will want to make an example of Benny as somebody in a very public position. So he obviously has thought about it. It's Mm -hmm. not like he's being glib about it. He clearly accepts it as something that might happen. But it's not taking away at all from his enthusiasm or his commitment to what he's doing. So... We will obviously keep people updated on the podcast when the sentencing takes place. And uh, I'm hoping very much that he is not going to prison. In other news, the Law Foundation of Ontario has announced a new core funding program for nonprofit organizations. The Catalyst program allows nonprofits working to advance access to justice to apply for up to $150,000 a year of core funding for three years. This funding is meant to support organizations in a fundamental way by covering core costs such as salaries of permanent staff, facilities, communications, and day to day expenses. From the LFO website, The Catalyst program will provide core funding as a means to support improvements to programs and services and expanded access to justice. By virtue of foundation funding, Catalyst grantees will have an improved ability to adapt, innovate, take advantage of opportunities, and respond to emerging needs. This is great news for NSRLP and for other nonprofits, which rely largely on various grant funding. Usually, such funding is allocated for specific, discrete projects, which certainly allows for some wonderful, impactful work, but can leave organizations struggling a bit to cover regular day-to-day costs and establish long-term security. Applications for Catalyst funding are due June 1st. See the LFO website for more information, including eligibility. Last week, Precedent Magazine published an excellent and important piece by Daniel Fish on the law profession's mental health crisis. The article profiled several Canadian lawyers, both new calls and legal veterans, and examined problems of depression, anxiety, and trauma, which are affecting the legal profession in increasingly alarming numbers. As an example, many lawyers struggle with imposter syndrome, fearing that they are frauds, that their imagined incompetence will be exposed, and that all their colleagues are smarter and work harder. This leads to an intense amount of internal pressure to constantly prove themselves. Mental health researcher Patrick Krill says, There is this notion that lawyers are supposed to be perfect. This makes it hard for them to admit they're struggling. The article shines light on the mental health crisis, and emphasizes the urgency of making changes in a profession where the rate of depression has skyrocketed from 19% in 1990, still very high compared to the 8% depression rate among the general population at that time, to 28% in 2016. As Fish points out in the article's byline, this is a story about a professional culture that is itself sick. Hopefully, pieces like this, with the increasing number of voices speaking out on this crisis, will lead to systemic changes and a healthier legal profession. Finally, Julie's latest blog post, published last week, introduces a new project that we've taken on here at the NSRLP. We're now looking into the accessibility and affordability of court transcripts, an issue that self-reps have been bringing up to us for years. Research assistants Becky Robinette and Kay Lascaro have been conducting a systematic investigation into the process of obtaining transcripts in every province and territory, 
and have met with a very wide variety in terms of cost and ease of access, or even whether transcripts are available for SRLs at all. Becky and Kayla have approached each attempt with three basic questions. One, can I get a transcript? Two, what is the procedure to get a transcript? And three, how much does it cost? In some jurisdictions, it's taken them less than 10 minutes to answer these questions. In others, it's taken days. In her blog, Julie reflects on what this experiment is telling us about the accessibility of our court processes and what this means for access to justice in general. Our final goal will be to produce two publications. The first, a report on the issue, and the second, a new primer for self-represented litigants on the processes for accessing transcripts across the country. Stay tuned for more on this project. As always, you can find links for these news items on our podcast webpage, representingyourselfcanada.com slash podcast. And that's it for Jumping Off the Ivory Tower this week. Join us next week when our guest will be Paula Gerber, Australian LGBTQ activist. Julie sat down with Paula during her time in Sydney, and you won't want to miss this great conversation. 